Good morning, church. It's good to be with you guys this morning, whether you're with us in person or if you're joining us online. It's great to be back with you as we continue our series, After God's Own Heart. If we haven't gotten the chance to meet, my name is Rob. I have the privilege of being one of the ministers on staff here at the church. And it's a gift to be together as we focus on the person of David. Last week, Barry kicked off this series for us. We've called it After God's Own Heart. And we're focusing in on King David, who was chosen by God to lead his people as the king of Israel. David is known in faith and in history by many different titles. Um, He's known as the psalmist. He's known as king, shepherd boy, giant slayer, etc., Uh, But the main description of David, which I think is kind of the reason we have moved into this series, is David is known in Scripture as a man who is after God's own heart. A few months back, Andy and I sat down looking forward to this season of uh, teaching at the church, and we said, hey, what do we want our church to learn about? What do we want our focus to be? And we agreed pretty quickly that it needs to be David. We need to look at David's life and ministry and acts while he was on earth, and we even got even deeper and said, we want to talk about how David is a man after God's own heart. And it was in this conversation that an even more interesting conversation began. And I want to share with you kind of where we were at with this sermon series and this title. As we were talking through it, it occurred to us we had two very different views of what it means to be after God's own heart. On one hand, to be after God's own heart, it sounds as though it was a heart that was created in the image of God's heart. So on one hand, to be after God's own heart means to be based after God's own heart. So when scripture says that David was a man who was after God's own heart, it means he had a heart that was most like God. David was after God's own heart like a person molded by the creator after the model of who the creator was. He looked the most like God within his heart. But I've always taken that phrase, after God's own heart, differently. To me, I always thought about placing the word chasing in front of that phrase. David was a man who was chasing after God's own heart. And all he did as a worshiper and all he did as a king and as a man, he was chasing after God's heart, hoping that his heart would begin to look more and more like God's. So with the two ideas, at first, we kind of went back and forth and wrestled, like, well, where are we going to take this? How do we want this to look? And then it hit us. Why couldn't David be both? Why can't he just be both? Why can't he be a man who looks like he resembles God's heart? but also a man who is striving in every area of his life to chase after the heart of God. Because it hit us, we're all broken human beings, even David. And so wouldn't it be true for us that when people look at us, we want them to see God's own heart within us. Yet we also want to be men and women who strive to have a heart that is chasing after God. I think that's true for all of us. And I believe we see both of these in Scripture. In fact, I I know we see David's heart as being after God's own in 1 Samuel 16, 7, when Samuel chooses Daniel out of the house of Jesse. It says this in 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on his height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So there's that biblical proof, that biblical example that within Scripture, we see that David's heart was seen by God, and it was seen as good. And at a young age, God chose David and pulled him and set him aside to go and do great things. He had a heart that was after God. But this morning, I want us to focus on that other piece of what it means to be after God's own heart and look at David as a man who is chasing God's own heart and striving 
after God's own heart and how we see that in his story and in his ministry because the reality is, much like us, David, without God, is a lost and broken man. I guess what I wanted, not just from this message, but from the series overall, my heart was, I want to kind of humanize David for us a bit. Let me explain what that means, because he's not an alien. Here's what I mean. I mean, I think that David is a man who we look at in Scripture, and we kind of raise him up on this pedestal. And we say that David is a man after God's own heart. He's chosen. He's a strong leader. People are going to follow David. David is going to have, until Jesus, arguably the most impact on earth of any other leader of the church and of God's people. And I think that's true. I think we see in Scripture that that's true. But what difference can it make in our lives if we take David and that example of him? I'm not saying let's take David down a peg. I'm saying how much powerful and how powerful can it be if you and I look at the story of David and begin to see ourselves in that a little bit more? If we can look at the shepherd boy who became king and actually see ourselves as an opportunity for God to do the same kind of powerful work he did through David and instead do that through us. David was after God's own heart, even when he had to chase it down with all that he had, and sometimes he failed. But that does not mean that the heart that was after God had to change. It means he fell short of the glory of God like all of us do. If you will, open up your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel. Go to chapter 11. We're going to find ourselves camped out in this passage today. Uh, This story outlines David, the king of Israel, and a woman named Bathsheba. So it's interesting, I can, I can tell some of you kind of perked up as soon as I said Bathsheba's name. I don't know, maybe you're like, I know this one, this one's a little spicy. Um, a lot of you kind of perked up, and I think that's interesting. I think, I think it's interesting because you are familiar with the story, you hear this, and you realize that we're about to talk about one of David's, or David's main and largest failure in his life. And I think it's interesting that some of you were falling asleep, but as soon as I said Bathsheba's name, you perk up. That tells me something that's true about all of us, and it's true about our culture, it's true about the world. There's something about the failure of others that piques our interest, and that grabs our attention. Something about when somebody else fails that makes us want to look. And I wonder why that is. I was a freshman in college, it was my very first day of my very first class at CCU in Cincinnati. And I was going into the classroom, and it was this English class, and I had a professor, his name was Paul Frisney, who's a really great man, and a very kind, very gentle man, and we go, I go into the class, and I sit in the very back, I have my hood up, I had my headphones in, because I'm an honor roll student, uh, because I was always on a roll. And I go, and I sit in the back of the class, and it's like a 45-minute class, it's chill, and at the very end of class, with about 10 minutes left, he goes, Professor Frisney says... Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you guys a verbal prompt, and here's how we're going to end every class we have together. I'm going to give you a verbal prompt, and I want you to take as much time as you need and write out a two-paragraph response to whatever it is that I say, whether it's how it makes you feel, whatever. When you're finished with that, you can stand up and just come place that on my desk, and then you're free to go as soon as you finish that. So I was the first one done, obviously, because, not because I was smart or good at it, but because I, was, I wanted to be the first one to leave. And... As soon as I'm finished, I I reach down, I grab my backpack, I put my stuff in it, and as soon as I lift my backpack up, I hear this crash. And I realize that as I lifted my backpack up, I bumped some sort of shelf in the back of the room. And and I turn around very quickly to see if I can save the destruction I've already caused, and I make it worse. So I turn around, I try and grab the shelf, and I look down, and there's just broken glass and books all over the floor and a picture of this guy 
on the ground. And I turn around, and as I turn around, I bump this larger portrait of this man. And I hit it again with my backpack. So I'm reaching down to pick stuff up and I'm breaking something else. And, and it's just a disaster. It's like a movie scene. Uh, everybody is staring at me. And about two more times, I go to fix something and I bump something else off the wall. And I look up and everybody's quiet. Everybody's reading. Uh, and there's broken glass. There's just pieces of drywall that came out with the shelf. It's horrible. And I'm thinking everybody's going to be laughing because if it were me and I was on the other side, I would laugh so hard if I saw this happen to somebody. Like that, that's my kryptonite is people failing or falling. I love it. And nobody's laughing. Everybody is just blood red and they're looking at me and they're just giving me like one of these like eyes wide looks. And I'm like, what's the big deal? And I look down and I see in loving memory of Professor Friskney on the ground. And I'm like, but Professor Friskney's here. And it hits me. My professor's name is Paul this professor's name is Tom. And it hits me again that I have just destroyed the memorial to my professor's father who had passed. And this whole classroom was dedicated in loving memory to Tom Frisney. And I look down and it's Tom Frisney's books and his pictures. And I look up and look at my professor who is Tom Frisney's son. And he is just head and hands face down. And everybody's looking at me like, you're going to die. Like, like, this is it for you. And I realize what I've done. I realized I destroyed my professor's father's memory. Uh, and he looks up and he is blood red in the face, dying laughing. He thinks it's the funniest thing that's ever happened. And, and I'm like, Professor, first thing, I'm, I'm so sorry. I am so, so sorry. And he goes, hey, don't worry, man. It's just a memorial to my late father. <laughs> Most embarrassing thing I've ever done. And he was a great sport about it. Every time we see each other since then, we, he brings it up. I like to think he tells the story to people as much as I do. Um, I just hope he doesn't use my name. Um, but I think that the story of David and Bathsheba is kind of a lot like that. David made a mistake, and every time he tries to make it right, every time David tries to fix something, not for everybody else, but for himself, every time he tries to fix it, he ends up making everything way worse. After David's major mistake, every time he tries to correct course and correct his action, he makes everything worse. And I think a lot of us have a story like that in our lives, whether it's something like destroying your professor's dad's memorial, or if it's like something else in your life where you've tried to fix something. Has anybody had that? You try to fix it and you make it worse. If not you, how many family members do you guys have that they try to fix it and they make it worse? Yeah, a lot lot more that time. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to look at the story of David and Bathsheba. We're going to walk through that story together. And my hope is that at the end of it, we're going to see not just the importance of avoiding certain things that we saw David, a man after God's own heart, fail at, but learning more about ourselves and where we're going to go. So maybe you've read this story before and you've read it a million times, then you're going to read it a million and one times today because our God does that with scripture. He teaches us something new. Every time we open it. And so if you would, uh, turn to verse 11 with me, and we're going to start there. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. That's going to be very important later. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers out to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Then she went back home. 
the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab and to the war front. He said, send me Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba. Send me Uriah, the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was. How are the soldiers doing? How is the war going? Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace where all of his master's servants, with all of his master's servants, they did not go down to his house. David hoped here was that Uriah would go down and sleep with his wife Bathsheba so that the child would appear to be Uriah's and not David's. He was trying to cover his tracks by having Uriah go home. But David was told Uriah did not go home. This is verse 10. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come back from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander, Joab, and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. He's like, it's not fair for me to go home and be with my wife when all of my brothers in arms can't do that. So Uriah is saying, I'm not going to do that. Then David said to him, stay here one more day. This is verse 12. And tomorrow I'll send you back to the war. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. David so here that he could get Uriah to have too much to drink, so that that would have Uriah go home and lay with his wife out of his drunkenness. But Uriah wouldn't do it. He still said it's not fair. Verse 14, it says, In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it back with Uriah to the war front. And in this letter, he said... Put your eye out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. He had him killed. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Later on, down just a little bit in verse 26, we read, When Uriah's wife, this is Bathsheba, when she heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of the morning was over, David had brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now, I don't know a lot of things, but I know for certain that the story and situation that we read here about King David was a large black mark on David's heart and on David's story. I know that if we're looking at a man who is after God's own heart, if David's heart looks like God's, it certainly doesn't look like God's heart here in the midst of this sinful mistake. Now, I'm not sure of all of your pasts and your stories and your experiences, but I can assure you that if stories about you and I were written as eloquently as this, they would probably depict a heart that has some dark spots as well. There are probably some stories and failures and setbacks we can see in our own story and in our own lives where we know that our heart did not resemble the heart of God. You can probably think about whatever that is for you right now. And I've heard the story of David and Bathsheba many times. And every time I hear it, I feel like I'm being given a bulleted list of, hey, here's what not to do. Like, hey, don't do this, this, and this. Here's how to not be like David. Here's how to not be like David. And I think that's such a weird thing because I feel like in every other part of David's story, we call him a man after God's own heart. I don't know about you, but for me, I would love to be 
not just considered, but to actually be a man who is after God's own heart. I would love to be known in history and in faith as a man who had a heart that resembled the Lord. Yet we read this one story and all of a sudden we're saying, you don't want to be like David. You don't want to be like him. Yet I would love to be a man after God's own heart. But as soon as there's a failure, as soon as there's a setback, as soon as the image we have of any person, any leader, David in this story, becomes distorted, as soon as that comes to light, we lower our attraction to that person and their leadership. Their influence becomes tainted. That's because there's something in the failure of others that piques our interest. There's a reason we look. And I don't think a lot of us would say that out loud, like I love seeing other people fail, but I do think it catches our eye. And here's why. It piques our interest because when other people fall short of the glory of God, again, we'd never say this, but when people have a dark mark written on their heart or their story, when people mess up, the reason we're so attracted to those situations is because we begin to see ourselves in that just a little bit more. It resonates with us more when somebody falls short because we start to realize we ourselves are broken and failed people as well. We're just like David, broken followers of Jesus who are chasing after the heart of God, trying to chase after the heart of God, but tripping along the way and falling along the way. So as we break down this famous story for a few more minutes together, I think we have two options. I think we have two real ways to look at this. We can, we can spend this time together being heartbroken and being angry and frustrated that David, a man after God's own heart, was able to fall so far. Or I think we can be encouraged that even during his greatest failure, before and after his greatest failure, David is still a man after God's own heart. And even after your greatest failure or my greatest failure or failures, You and I still have potential to be men and women who are chasing after the heart of God with our lives and with all we do. I think that's hopeful. I think that's a special realization. And so don't count yourself out because of your failures, because if David did, then we wouldn't have the king of Israel that we did. He wouldn't be the the king after God's own heart. So let's look at the story. Back at the beginning, a lot of people think, like if I say David and Bathsheba, what's the biggest problem? What, What was the major thing that David did wrong? I think a lot of us would say, well, the main thing he did wrong was he slept with Bathsheba. And that was a big mistake. He shouldn't have done that. It was wrong. But that wasn't the first mistake that David made in the story. The first mistake David made is actually found in verse 1, where it says, At the time when kings go off to war, David remained in Jerusalem. So all the kings are out fighting with their battle, and he sent Joab, and he sent his army out. But David, for whatever reason, decided he was going to stay back. And he didn't go out and fight with his people. The first mistake David made was not going on the roof and seeing Bathsheba. The first mistake David made was being there in the first place. He should have been out with his men in the first place. But he had put himself in a different place. He was supposed to be at war with his military, leading and fighting for the Lord's army. But instead, he allowed others to go in his place. A lot of us think the story of David and Bathsheba is simply a story about the danger of lust. And it is. The danger of lust is something that is very real. We'll talk about it in just a few minutes. But the first problem is the danger of our attention. You see, all the sin and failure that follows the story, all the things that David did wrong trying to figure out what to do right, it all began because his attention was somewhere else than where God wanted it. 
His attention was somewhere it shouldn't have been in the first place. His attention could not have been on Bathsheba or on the roof or in wandering if he was on mission and his attention was set on the thing that God wanted him to do. But instead, he allowed his attention to be taken. And friends, trust me, hear me. If your attention is not where God wants it, your attention will be somewhere. Your attention's always going to be somewhere. So you have to be actively choosing to have your attention where God wants it. So let's not get tricked into thinking that David was focusing on Bathsheba and that was the only main problem. The problem started with attention, started with focus. We think it's all about where the focus ended up. I would argue it's more about where it was never at in the first place. On mission, on God's mission, where God wanted it. God desired his attention somewhere and David decided to stay back and all of this is a result of that first. At the root of every single problem that arose, the reality is, for David, the reality is for you and me, if we're supposed to be where God, if we are where God wants us to be, if we are where we're supposed to be, we won't be somewhere where Satan has a clear line at us because we will be exactly where God wants us to be. So as you're sitting here and you're wondering about the worst and the, the, the sin, the sad, the broken thing that you have done that has separated you from God, my first question wouldn't be what did you do? It was where does your attention need to be now? Where are you supposed to focus back to? If this story of David teaches us anything, it's that when God calls for our attention, when he calls for your attention and mine, it's not just out of obedience that we turn. It's because God knows something we don't, and that is where he wants you is better for you than where you're going to go on your own. Where our God wants us is far better for us. Not just out of what's right and what's wrong, but it is good for you to follow God. It is good for you to be where he wants you because your attention will be somewhere. So shouldn't it be where God calls it to be? Next thing that happens is that lustful piece where David notices Bathsheba off in the distance. Later in the evening, there's nobody around. David saw a beautiful woman and he decided he wanted that beautiful woman for himself. In a move of lust, David called her to him, realizing that she was married and that her husband was serving in his military. Uh, He didn't care about that in this moment. He had power and he wanted the woman there. And in this scenario, the king gets what he wants. Let me sidebar here for just a moment. Uh, I don't think that we love talking about this part of the story of David and Bathsheba. uh, But I think now more than ever, it's important to highlight the reality of this situation and what David did. David was the king. He was the most powerful man in that region, arguably in the land. Bathsheba was a woman in the city. In a time where men already had an unfair power advantage over women, in a time when men already had a status advantage over women, the king called a woman to him and she came to him. Now let me be very clear. Scripture doesn't say whether or not Bathsheba did or did not want to go with David. But I can tell you based off of the context of this story that she didn't have much choice either way. And that's a heart-shattering reality about a man who is after God's own heart. It's a harsh reality that David used his power, privilege, and position to get something that he wanted because he could. And my goodness, do I wish that that wasn't still something that happens today. There are so many people in this room or who are watching this who have been affected by the misuse and abuse of power in some way, shape, or form, whether it was a situation like this or a situation that was different that affected you or a family member. For those of you who have been affected by the reality of somebody misusing their position and power and privilege, I am sorry. It's wrong and it's destructive 
and it hurts. And as much as David and the men and women who have abused this power cause much harm, as, as true as that is, hear me that this is also true. I hope you find comfort in knowing that our God's heart is not like that. And we know God's heart is not like that, that God's heart disapproves of the behavior of David and any misuse of that power for personal selfish reasons such as that, because David was punished. There were consequences for his actions. Now, I think the temptation is to say, and I don't want you to hear this, that I'm so glad David got what he deserved. I'm glad that all people who have fallen short are going to get what's coming to them. I think we live in a culture that would love that to happen. It's all about them being punished for their wrongdoing. That's not the bell that I'm ringing by saying this. What I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to get across is that we have a God who cares so much about you that there is going to be justice. God punishing David and holding him accountable to his actions shows us that the power abuse is not in God's original plan and he hates it. So if you felt that kind of pain in your own life, whether you're a man or a woman, I pray that you will find comfort in knowing God's heart for you is not like that. And we know that because when he saw that situation, he did something about it. And if we see David as a man who's after God's own heart, it certainly wasn't a man after God's own heart right here. So don't give up on God because of what a broken world has done. Don't give up on the creator because of what the creation has done to harm. That is a broken, dark heart of a broken world. That is not the heart of God who loves you and cares for you and has a place for you. David was an extremely powerful man. He was able to see a beautiful woman. And because of his status and power and ability, he was able to just send some men to go and get her for him and bring her to him. He sees a beautiful woman and he says, I want her here right now. That's power. To see something that you want and just get it. Flash forward a few thousand years and this is a very similar power. Within three clicks, we have the accessibility to the things and the desires of a broken world that David had. David, a man after God's own heart, who God saw as a young man and said, I see his heart and his heart is good. David, who didn't have a smartphone with Safari, was able to call a woman to him because of his power. I promise you that greater men and women and lesser men and women than all of us have fallen prey to the attention of the world because it, it starts with attention. If our attention is not where it should be, it will go somewhere else. And this thing loves to fight for our attention. And it will. And it has. And it does. And we see that in the brokenness of the world. We see that in the statistics of people who are watching pornography, who are in chat rooms, who are in places they shouldn't be in the brokenness of a world. And the fear is that we talk about that like it's other people and it's not us. But we have more power and access now than any other time in history. And a man after God's own heart, the king of Israel, who God chose to lead, fell short of the glory of God in that way. So I promise you, please do not fool yourselves into thinking that you don't need to be aware of that. That it couldn't happen to you or your family. Let me switch gears just a little bit to the student minister hat. Uh, I'm, I'm the student minister here at Wellspring. If I can ask one thing of all the parents in the room, watch your kids' phones. Check them. Look through them. Make sure they're not places they shouldn't be. Put the softwares on there to block the content that is going to lead them down a dark path. You have the power to do that. There are ways. And if you don't know what those softwares are, those settings are, please come and talk to me. I would love to help equip you to help fight that. 
Because let me tell you, a grown king of God's people fell short with this. So I promise a 12 to 18 year old who's three clicks away from what they want, don't assume that they're okay. Don't assume they're safe from that reality. And let me be very, very clear. It is not just students 12 to 18. Adults, families, spouses, friend groups, get in the safe environment. Get the softwares on your phone. Get the accountability of a life group in your life, of a good group of men or women who can walk alongside you. Because with this kind of power comes a massive responsibility to do the right thing. Your attention is going somewhere. And my gosh, is that attention being called for you everywhere else. After the act with Bathsheba, after this happens, everything that David does with Uriah and getting him drunk and sending him back and having him killed, every action David makes after that first one is just to try and fix what he did. It's all about shame. Everything after that, it's about shame. He was ashamed for what he did, so he tried to cover it up. He was ashamed for what he did, so he got Uriah drunk. He was ashamed for what he did, and he had him killed. Shame if you don't know, is an extremely powerful feeling. When I was in Bible college, it was my sophomore year, a year after I destroyed the memorial to my professor's dad. And I was working for a church about 45 minutes north of my school um, in Dayton, Ohio. And the perk of working at this church, it was a little farther away, but I was working under my old youth minister. And I love him. And I still love him. He's a great mentor of mine still. Uh, But I wanted to work for him. I wanted to learn from him a little bit more while I was in college. And so he had me part-time at the church teaching fourth and fifth grade ministry on Sundays, uh, on Saturday nights and Sunday mornings. And uh, one day came up, it was a Saturday night. I wasn't on the Saturday night, but I was supposed to come and teach fourth and fifth that Sunday morning. And that Saturday night, I was just in an extremely low point. I was filled with shame for the person I was being and the way I was talking and acting, who I was surrounding myself with. I just had this moment of, I don't think I'm walking in what God wants for me. And I'm certainly not walking in what I want for myself. Like this isn't the life I envisioned in for me. It, it wasn't me. I felt outside of myself. And so I called my youth minister up and I said, hey man, I'm not gonna come in tomorrow. <laughs> I said, I'm not, I'm not gonna come in tomorrow. Those fourth and fifth graders will have to find another teacher in 12 hours. Like it can't be me because I'm, I'm out. And I went farther. I said, in fact, I'm, I'm kind of considering leaving ministry behind. And I still have, I'm still early enough in my school. I can go start somewhere else. And it'll only put me back a little bit. I just, I think I need to do something else. And I told him why. I told him the situation that I was in. And he paused. And then he said this to me, which has changed everything. And I hope it helps you as well. He said, Rob, if every minister that made a mistake quit ministry, we'd have no ministers. If every minister that made a mistake quit ministry, we'd have no ministers. And that's not just true for me and people who are in ministry. If every believer who made a mistake decided to walk away from the attention on God's plan, if every believer, if every one of you, if myself, if we turned away from God just because of a shameful mistake that we made, no matter how serious it is, no matter how much it needs to be addressed and fixed, if we turned away, what would happen to the church? If the church gave up because the church failed. The church is not a place for healthy believers. The church is a place for broken people. And that's why we're here, because we're broken people seeking after God's own heart and chasing after God's own heart in every area of our lives. If everyone who made a mistake gave up on the church, 
What would the church look like? So that's my challenge to you. If you're sitting here wondering and you're thinking back to that one thing you did wrong or the multiple things you've done wrong, or maybe it's a spiral. Every time you tried to fix it on your own, everything has just gotten worse. My prayer and my challenge for you this morning is if David had done that, we would have lost the king of Israel and God wouldn't have had a chance to work on his heart. If everybody that made a mistake walked away from God's mission altogether, then God wouldn't have anybody on mission. And guys, there's a lot of work to do. People who need to find and follow Jesus, they're out there. They're in this room. People who don't know who Christ is, all because those of us who are able to go and share the good news of Jesus and bring people into the ministry, bring people into the light of who Jesus is, we won't go because we're so ashamed of one thing we did. That's ridiculous. That is failing at God's mission. That is giving the enemy exactly what he wanted when he took your attention in the first place. When he took my attention in the first place. At no point do I believe that God would say to you or me, he didn't say to David, why don't you just be done? I don't want to use you anymore because you did that thing. Because you hurt those people or because you broke up that family. Those are serious things and actions of consequences. I often tell our students, if you play stupid games, you'll probably win a stupid prize. Actions have consequences. But there's always, always grace. There is grace that is deeper still for you and for me. And so when we have experienced shame, and when we're sitting in our own shame now, our call is not to flee from the church, but instead run back to the attention where God has called it to be. Because I think if God was sitting here and talking to us about the thing we did wrong, his thing wouldn't be, well, you're... You're done for. I'm done with you. His thing would be, okay, well, what are you going to do next? What are you going to do now? I believe that there is a next step for every single person in this room or who's watching online. Maybe for you, that next step is actually the first step. And you need to make the decision to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life. And you need to be baptized. You need to say, I have been walking in shame and I have been carrying this guilt. I've been carrying everything. And I don't even know where Jesus wants my attention to be because I've never followed him before. If that's something you need to do this morning, I would invite you to come and talk to me or somebody else. Baptism is the first step in following Christ. And if you need to be baptized, we want to do that for you. And we want to talk with you about it and walk with you on that journey. Or maybe for you, you've walked with Jesus, but you made a mistake you tripped along the way as you were chasing after God's heart. And after that happened, you've been trying to fix it on your own. And you've been knocking everything else out, pushing people away. And you've been walking outside of God's plan. And it's just time today to turn your attention back to where God wants it. If that's you and you need prayer, if you need to talk with somebody, I want to invite you to talk with me or somebody that you know and trust in the church. Here in just a few minutes, I'm going to pray. And I'll be over here to the side during worship. If you need to make a decision or if you need prayer, or if you need whatever we can do, we want to walk alongside you as best we can. But, but hear this truth. No matter what you have done, no matter how you have done it, no matter how far you feel, our God is not done with you. And there is work to be done. Pray with me. God, I'm thankful for this morning. I'm thankful for this place. And God, I'm thankful this morning for your word that acts as a constant reminder of grace in our lives. God, you have set us on mission and we have stumbled along the way and we will continue to stumble because of our brokenness. But God, I'm thankful for Jesus who brings righteousness. 
I'm thankful for Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And in Christ Jesus, we will stand before you without guilt. And we will walk with you. God, we want to help others do the same and invite them into that freedom. Would you empower us to do that despite what we've done? And don't let the things we have done wrong deter us from your mission anymore. Let today be the day we turn back to you. We love you. Amen.